The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 265 for Wednesday, June 2nd, 2010. Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. I'm Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. And on the other end is... John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. Fantastic. So we have, uh, we have quite a bit of stuff to go through. You know what? Let's just dive right in and, uh, and let's start with Brad, shall we? You don't want to talk about the nope. couch? <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about the couch. Or the weather. <laughs> or the weather. That's All right. right. But yeah, let's dive right in. This, okay. this is a great first one because I, I learned something. I like it when I learn something. From That's a good thing. You, or you from me or, yeah. or from the listeners. Anyways, go, go ahead. Brad says, uh, I'm having an issue with my photos in iPhoto 09 in Snow Leopard 10.6. I can see the photos, but when I press the space bar to enlarge the photo, I get the black screen with an exclamation point in the middle of some of them. I may have inadvertently erased some of the pictures I am assuming. Can I use Time Machine to pull up an old backup, then export pictures to an external hard drive? After that, go back to the most recent backup, delete pictures on the computer, then import again from my external hard drive? Basically, can you go backwards with Time Machine, then upload a newer backup? I know this is not possible with Windows Restore, but wondering if it's different with the Mac. Okay, so uh, the, the first thing that we should talk about here is that... Uh, iPhoto stores multiple copies of your pictures. It creates thumbnails. Uh, if you make edits to some of your pictures, it stores an original and then it also mm -hmm. stores the edited copy. Uh, so by default, yes, you are going to have multiple copies of every picture. And if you do something either intentionally or not that goes in and, and deletes some of those, you'll run into an issue like Brad's seeing here where, you get uh, you sort of see the pictures, but then when you dig deeper, they're not there or vice versa. Right. So. Uh, so, yeah, you know, Brad, Brad knows what his problem is. Um, John, you found uh, you found the solution, I believe. Uh, yep. And then and then this will this will lead into a quite a, an interesting conversation. So go ahead. Right. So as you point out, and I found this before also, um, is yeah, even if you modify a photo, typically, unless you explicitly delete it. Uh, for example, I, I found this by accident the other day. I was looking through some of my photos, and I'll typically tweak them, and I think I accidentally hit the shift key, and all of a sudden, it changed to the original, and I think that's a shortcut that's not well, uh, or, or just, uh, I, find, I, I find a lot of things by hitting keys by accident in iPhoto or other apps, but sure. um, anyway, so as you point out, uh, it, there's an original buried deep within the, uh, and I think it's the uh, iPhoto library inside of your pictures folders, typically where all this stuff is. Now, what he said he could certainly do, but that's overcomplicating it. There's a nice way to do this, and then you have something even better, Dave. So I had not used this before, but I started going through iPhoto. Um, and if you go to the file menu, there is a browse backups option. This is within iPhoto. That's correct. So iPhoto in the file menu is uh, it's in iPhoto 09 at least. Um, is called Browse Backups. And I'm like, huh, well, let's check that out. When I did Browse Backups, it started up Time Machine, but the interface was almost like it was a hybrid between the Time Machine interface and the iPhoto interface, and that it still was iPhoto with the categories that you would expect on the left, like you know, albums and, and uh, pictures and, and all of that stuff. But it also had the feature where you have the, the time slider on the right. 
So I don't even think he needs to do what he was proposing, which is to export and re-import. I think he can just, assuming that he was backing up his, uh, he didn't explicitly exclude the uh, you know iPhoto library from the Time Machine backup, he should just be able to go to whatever category, whether it be pictures or albums or whatever, and just go back in time until it pops up. Yep, that's right. Uh, e- what I would recommend is... Go ahead into your pictures folder and make a backup of your iPhoto. Like quit iPhoto, make a backup of your iPhoto library folder as it stands. Yes, there's some stuff missing, but just in case this time machine restore overwrites, perhaps something newer that you've put in there, uh, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing because you can always use something like iPhoto library manager to merge your old library or your new library with your existing one or whatever needs to happen. So make a backup of that. Just so you've got it somewhere and uh, and that way you're safe. But, yeah, I think I think you're right, John. The um, the the time machine integration there in iPhoto should handle this form. And and it's important to note that's what that's what this is. This is not some magic separate iPhoto backup. It is time machine, uh, even though it only looks somewhat like time machine. Uh, many, uh, not many, some of Apple's apps uh, support direct time machine integration. iPhoto is one and mail is another you get a similar thing if you navigate to a mailbox uh, in mail let's say you go to your inbox and then uh, mail i don't believe mail has its own time machine uh, option in the menus like like iphoto does but all you got to do is make sure mail is the frontmost app and then either hit the time machine button mm-hmm. if it's still in your dock or uh, if you've got one in the menu bar and just choose enter time machine that will do the same thing. It'll bring you to time machine, but you're still in the mail interface and you can restore old copies of your inbox. Uh, what will happen though, is you are overwriting the entire mailbox, I believe. So uh, again, you need to pick which version you want. I don't think it's, I don't think it goes down to the the message level uh, where you can just extract one message, but it might again, you know, having a separate backup just in case so you don't blow something away is, uh, is highly advisable. But yeah, that time machine integration is a very cool thing. Yeah, and that's the thing I learned today because uh, uh, yeah, I was looking for the menu option as as you said, and and there wasn't an explicit one like there is an iPhoto. But as long as it's the frontmost thing and you run Time Machine, it's uh, yeah, yeah. So very nice. I'll, I'll have to dig around and find out what other Apple uh, Apple apps uh, do that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, all right, let's move on to John. John Rice. Not not our John, of course, but uh, listener John writes. Uh, Hi, guys. I'm having trouble with my late 2007 aluminum iMac for no apparent reason. I'm missing icons in almost every folder. And he sent us a screenshot where uh, there's, you know, maybe eight, uh, 12 folders and five of them have icons. This is in his home folder. But things like documents, downloads, library, movies, pictures, sites and uh, Dropbox, which is not a uh, Apple folder, are all missing icons. So uh, we wrote him back and, uh, and and there's a couple of things that could happen here. We do know the answer. Uh, and, and what it was, was that a cache file had gotten corrupted and John ran Onyx and under the cleaning tab, make sure the international preferences box is checked. And that went ahead and cleaned things out. So again, Onyx is a free program that we talk about all the time. You've probably heard about it before, but if you haven't, it's a free piece of software that lets you do all sorts of system maintenance. And in this case, uh, cleaning those caches, which when we say cleaning caches, it deletes the caches and then the system rebuilds them, uh, hopefully rebuilding them from the proper sources. And in John's case, that solved the issue. 
So that's that's step one. Uh, but the um, it, it, this could be something else. Icons in Mac OS 10 in the Finder are stored in two ways. One is the default icon for whatever that folder is. And in many cases, right, it's just a default folder icon, uh, not default folder, the app, mind you. Right. But it just mm-hmm. a, a generic folder icon. Uh, but you can go in and if you highlight uh, any document or application or folder and go to file and get info, you can see right there. There's a there's an icon uh, in the uh, in the in the get info window. And if you click on that, you can either paste in a new icon. You can copy out the existing icon or if you have already replaced that with a standard icon, you can hit the delete key or choose cut and that will remove any custom icon and restore it back to its original. So uh, in John's case, that's not what happened. But if you do have some corrupted icon in there and you just want to go back to the, to the default, uh, you can do it that way by highlighting the icon in the get info window and choosing delete. Does that, uh, does that get too convoluted, John? No. No, I'm with you on that. Um, okay. Yeah, so it was a corrupted cache, and uh, yeah, and as you pointed out, there's a way to uh, to examine or or uh, change uh, the icons if 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 you want to do that sort of thing. Right, right. Uh, you know, let's uh, let's talk about our first sponsor, which is Smile on My Mac with Disc Label. Disc Label is is one of those apps that when you need it, it's exactly the right app for you. Uh, recently, one of the bands that I was in, we put together a quick little demo and uh, and the guy that was kind of handling everything said, all right, now I need to burn these to CD, which, of course, you know, most of us can do with our computers these days. He said, but does anybody have, you know, uh, some software or something where I can print those labels that'll stick on the CD? I want to kind of put our band logo on them and. And that sort of thing. And instantly it was like, oh, dude, you need disc label. And so I, you know, I sent him off to the website and he's like, oh, that's exactly what I need. And it is, you know, there are times when you want to create either a label to stick on the CD or a jewel case insert uh, or a DVD case insert or all three. And disc label is the perfect app to do this with. It comes with templates perfectly built to match the CD or DVD. uh, And You can then put your own artwork in. You can use their templates to give you a starting point. You can use their templates to give you a finishing point if you want. Uh, And it really makes this easy. Of course, like everything else that uh, we get from Smile on my Mac, there is a free trial available. So you can go and check it out and make sure it's going to work for you. And then after that, it's 36 bucks, 35.95 US. Uh, they do have a 90 day money back guarantee. So chances are after 90 days, you know, after you purchase it, you're going to love this thing so much. Not even going to think about that. But uh, but they are so confident that you're going to love it, that uh, they'll offer you a 90 day money back guarantee. Uh, it is, of course, compatible with Snow Leopard. And uh, and I, I, you know, it like I said, it's exactly what when you want it. It's exactly what you want. So this is disc label. You're doing, you know, your summer trips and you get all your pictures from your vacation. You want to put them on a DVD. Uh, you make your DVD with iMovie or iDVD. And then uh, and then, you know, you slap a label on it. You put it in a jewel case and bam, you can hand it out to family and friends or store one in your own archives. And when you go and grab it, it looks nice. You've got a picture on the front that you customized. Maybe one of the pictures from your went from your trip. You put some text on there. You're good to go. Smile on my slash disc label D I S C L A B E L. All right. Moving on to Nicole, John. Mm. 
All right. Nicole writes. I've got a situation that has stumped me for about six months now. I purchased my first MacBook Pro in 2009, so it's just six months old. Straight out of the box, I've had trackpad issues. I visited the Genius Bar three times, and of course, they can never reproduce it. They've offered to replace the trackpad, which I was reluctant to do initially, but after a few more months of frustration, I agreed. They turned it around in a day, didn't break anything else where they were in there, and touchpad behavior is unchanged. Since then, I've raised the issue with the creatives at the Apple Store during the course of my one-to-one sessions. They have nothing to say. Apple Care didn't offer any help either, though I can't remember what they actually said when I talked to them. It's been a while. Can't say I blame anyone at Apple for not getting it because the dang thing never acts up in their presence. The issue is this. When attempting to use one-finger action on the trackpad, like moving the pointer, the pointer will actually freeze on the screen for anywhere from two to eight seconds. It doesn't seem isolated to any particular apps. Happens anywhere, anytime. I really do believe I've ruled out user error. For starters, I become incredibly deliberate about how I use the trackpad. I very carefully take my pointer finger and ball up the rest of my fingers in a fist. Then I remove my other hand from the surface completely. So I don't think that the trackpad is picking up confusing signals. This is super frustrating. Even though it's only a few seconds lost here and there, it is agonizing. I've played with trackpad settings, trackpad settings, and I haven't seen any changes. Do you have any suggestions? Okay. Yes, I think, John, you and I both have suggestions on this one. Yeah, I've been gabbering, gabbering, gabbering. That's a that's a new yeah. verb, right? I've been gabbering a lot. Take it. Go. OK. And actually, I came up with one while while you were gabbering. gabbering. <laughs> <laughs> I actually came up with one that, uh, that just popped into my head here that we have a number of them. Okay. So here's one suggestion. All right. Um, Nicole pointed out that this does not happen, which you know is always the case. It never happens when you show it to, to support people. Right. The problem goes away. But what occurred to me, so the thing is the trackpad is actually a USB device. Because if you look in System Profiler and you look under USB, you will see a device. It's called, surprise, Apple Internal Keyboard Slash Trackpad. I'm going to suggest one thing, and you can probably already guess what it is, Dave. Does she have... Any other USB devices plugged into the computer that could be potentially freaking out the USB bus. Right. My assumption is when she brings the machine in, she's not bringing in all of the peripherals that she has hooked up. So one suggestion, disconnect all of your peripherals and see if the problem goes away. It's, yeah. a, it's a long shot, but, but I think it's a reasonable assumption, uh, a reasonable thing to try. Sure, sure. Okay. So yeah, that definitely, you know, it's a, it's a laptop. So maybe she doesn't have any USB peripherals, but, but in either case, yeah, agreed, you know, try and replicate the environment uh, where you've seen it work as well uh, as you can when it's in a situation where it's not working. And if that means it wasn't plugged into anything at the Apple store, then it means it's, you know, don't plug it into anything at home and try it that way. But that also means replicate the environment. The trackpad is a static device, I believe. It it runs on electrostatic, right? Something like that, John. And it I thought it was capacitive. Capacitive, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. I, you know, my gabbering wasn't getting me there. Uh, it is a capacitive device, which means that it requires uh, some sort of signal from your hand. And if your hand or the air is either very dry uh, or perhaps very wet, uh, the trackpad will not respond. So if the humidity in your house is radically different from that at the Apple store, I'm assuming that it works for you, Nicole, at the Apple store and not at home. If it doesn't work for you at the Apple store, but it works for everybody else, 
Then the environmental issue is uh, a far more closer to home, as it were. Uh, and, and it could be your hands themselves are simply not uh, within spec, if you would, right, to work with a trackpad. But it, assuming that's not the case, then, then I would take a look at the environment at home. Perhaps it's very, very dry there. If that's the case, the trackpad won't work. If it's very, very humid, it also won't work. It's looking for a delta, I think, right? That the, In order for the trackpad to sense motion, it needs to see what more, uh, more, hum- more moisture in the spot where you're touching than the other spots. Is that right, John? Um, I found an article that we can okay. lead to here, but it, it, it is a technology overview. And what they say in short here is it's a technology overview of the trackpad. It works on a principle called coupling capacitance. As your finger moves over the surface, the trackpad evaluates the change of capacitance between two layers of measurement electrodes built into the surface of the trackpad. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, but, but what you're saying is, and I've noticed this too, actually. I've noticed this when I've either, um, if my fingers are wet, yeah, try using, try using your trackpad when you get out of the shower, like in a hotel room. I've done that. You know, you try and go check your email right after you're out of the shower. It never works. Never. It, it doesn't work great because I think what the capacitance, or it, it can't, because of the moisture, it can't detect the capacitance. So, so I'm with you is the, uh, an environmental factor uh, may, be, may be impacting, um, yeah, the ability of the trackpad to do what it does. Yep. Um, it's got to be. I mean, it, you know, well, it doesn't have to be. Like you said, it could be a USB uh, device issue or driver issue. It could also be uh, that you got two bad trackpads. Very, you know, very rare, but certainly possible in the grand scheme of things. Apple has made more than one bad trackpad and perhaps you got two of them. Right. Uh, But if they're not able to reproduce it at the at the store and more importantly, if you're not able to reproduce it at the store, then, yeah, you know, maybe maybe it's time to get a humidifier for the house or a dehumidifier. Right. I mean, it it there there are other reasons besides just your trackpad to worry about the humidity at, at, at home. Right. Health reasons and, and all of that good stuff. Right. So because the interference now, I, I, I think she touched upon this, that um, uh, there is the potential if you got too much stuff happening on the trackpad that it may get confused. But um, that used to be an explicit setting in the trackpad, but, but that's built in right now. You, you don't even get the box anymore where you could say, you know, ignore right. extraneous input. But um, I'm pretty sure this machine is new enough where that's built in because uh, one day I'd look to try to find this setting in the trackpad and it's, it's not there anymore. And I looked why and Apple said, well, it's, it's, it's built into the behavior. Now, the other thing you could go to the console. Uh, another thing I'm suspecting, because, you know, I love pointing out hardware problems. Um, I've noticed this message sometimes in the console. And um, and the message is as follows. Apple USB multi-touch driver, colon, colon. Validate checksum. Package checksum. Correct. Expected whatever checksum bytes were whatever. Um, what that's saying is, so, so a checksum uh, is a very basic integrity check where you basically just add up all the numbers in, in something. And that's a checksum. There are more sophisticated ways of going about this, but it's a very basic way of error correction. And, and, and the problem is, if the formula, it, it, what happens is that if, when the data comes to, from one side to the other, if the checks, it, it recalculates the checksum. And if it's different, then the assumption is that the data somehow got corrupted. So it could potentially be a flaky... Uh, a different USB problem, but it could be a flaky connection from the trackpad to the motherboard because I've actually seen this, at least, you know, when I had to, you know, the number of times I've been in my machine, there's a cable that goes from the trackpad to the motherboard. If that's loose or wasn't replaced properly, then 
potentially. So, so look in your console, and if you see any of these Apple USB multi-touch driver checksum errors, um, it's a, it's a it's a bad or flaky connection between the trackpad and the motherboard, and they they should get in there and fix it. Or the trackpad is starting to freak out, as you suggested. Sure, it could be another bad one. So. Sure. Just another tool for you to, to try to identify if, if, if it's maybe the hardware that, that's faulty. All right. Uh, let's move on to Will. Will writes, I have a Mac Pro 2007 Intel quad-core 3 gigahertz machine. I recently added a third Seagate Barracuda drive, same as the model I have in my second bay. I went to start it up after installing the new drive, and the graphics card fan started spinning at full throttle, and the drives did nothing. Perhaps it was the new drive. I thought. So I held down the power button until the machine turned off, disconnected all the cables and removed the third new drive. I plugged everything back in and booted the machine. Same thing. So I thought maybe I burned out my video card. I happened to have a spare that had come with the machine originally and then swapped it out. Same thing. Just a nice loud fan, which is great on a hot day, but very expensive alternative to a conventional fan. Now I'm sitting here with the turbo blower Mac Pro that does squat. My question is, do you think my logic board is fried? And could installing a new drive actually do this? If it is the logic board, how hard is it to install a new one? Before you ask, yes, I have, or should I say I had AppleCare and it ran out last month. I found a logic board from DV Warehouse, but I cannot find any how-to videos online, so I'm not sure if it's something I have the right tools for. I'm pretty savvy with teardowns and getting under the hood, but I've never had to take on a logic board before. Okay. Uh... John, my feeling on this is that it's certainly possible and and in fact likely that uh, it was a motherboard that that was shorted out. I mean, he's swapped out the graphics card, um, but, you know, it, it even if it was the graphics card, uh, the drives would still spin up. You'd still hear sound. You'd still get some other reaction out of the machine, even if you couldn't actually see anything. It would sound like it was booting or doing something. Um, you know, the, again, going back to humidity and dust and static and all of that, uh, it's certainly possible when you're in there. And I did this once I had a Mac two CI, uh, when I worked at Citibank first computer that I was ever paid to, uh, to update on that job. And I, I burned out the motherboard. I went in to put some new card in, maybe I was putting Ram in or something. And, uh, you know, I just opened it up like I'd done with other machines for myself and friends and that thing before. And, uh, popped it open, put the RAM in, closed it up. Nothing. Okay. You know, took the RAM out. Still nothing. Hmm. Not good. Called up Apple. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, you know, we'll send somebody out. And they did. And sure enough, it was, you know, bad motherboard. Thankfully that was covered by either our support contract or Apple care or whatever it was at the time. Mm -hmm. But you, you know, it, it's definitely possible, you know, as you're moving things around, dust can skate across the board, cause static and boom, you're, uh, you're out of luck. So, yes, I do think it's possible that it's a motherboard. John, before we talk about replacing the motherboard and what that entails, uh, why don't you share your, your thoughts on this? Okay, so a few nuggets I'm going to offer here. So, number one, so it sounds like uh, Will, it's Will, right? Yep. It sounds like he's comfortable getting inside a machine here. Um, so, so what I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to offer here is going to sound fairly obvious, but we don't want to assume that everybody knows this here. So, number one, and I'm sure he did this, but, but again, if, if you're ever going to get in the machine... Number one, turn it off. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not being condescending. I'm just saying, nope. you know, some. Uh, I mean, All sometimes right, I got I to gotta jump in here and tell a tell a story to because yeah, it, you're no. not being condescending, and uh, and I would never 
uh, purport to be condescending, especially about this back when I was doing, and then I'll let you get your thing, but this tangent's funny. Uh, back when I was doing a lot of consulting and we had our, our computer nerds business down in Texas, I'm sitting with a client and uh, we were putting a new modem in a U.S. robotics uh, sportster, right? It was going inside his machine. And uh, it's a Windows machine. It was fun. You know, we did a lot of Windows work. And so I, I uh, boot, so the first thing I would do is boot the machine up, make sure that, you know, the device manager, this was in the Windows 95, maybe the 98 days, but it was after plug and play had come out, but it wasn't entirely reliable, you know. Uh, and, and so went through the deal and, yep, looked in the device manager. Everything's good. Okay, great. So, you know, I uh, get the modem out and I go around and, and I had to get at the computer kind of from behind the desk. So he's sitting there in the chair that was, you know, next to me and I got up out of the chair and, uh, Went around to the back of the computer, opened it up, put the new modem in, and I hear the client say, new hardware found. And that's when it hit me. I had never turned the computer off. Now, somehow, the stars had aligned in my favor, and I mm. put this board in just right. And somehow, it didn't fry the machine, and the machine was just happy. Oh, yep, new hardware, no problem. And uh, so sitting there, you know, my, my my first instinct was to scream. And, and uh, thankfully, I, I held that back and I said, oh, great. Excellent. So I came back around. I made sure the drivers were installed. I'm like, all right, we're good. Yep, that's that's excellent. And, uh, you know, we went on our merry way. But uh, yes, yep. it happens. Mm. So don't assume it's off, even if you've turned a computer off hundreds or thousands of times before. So right. back to you, John. Mm. Now, the second thing I'm going to suggest is... Uh, I'm going to give you my feelings on this, but if I'm working on something, even though it's off, I will leave the power cord plugged in. Okay. The reason yeah. I do that is because that makes sure that the machine, assuming that you're on a grounded outlet, which you really should be, is that the machine and, and the case and all that is grounded. So in the event that, uh, and I'm going to tie this to something else. So, so some, the, the thing is some machines, like even I think this G5 that I have here, even if it's off, there's a little trickle of power powering some of the stuff inside the machine, but um, I don't think it's anything. That, uh, I'm, I'm still going to suggest that. I'm, I'm going to stand behind that because I've always done that when I've worked on a machine. Even okay. though it's off, I leave the power cord plugged in and plugged into the wall. Is now, it, does that include when you're putting RAM in a machine? Yes. Okay. A laptop, laptops too or just, uh, just desktops? Mm, just desktops. Okay. Actually, a laptop. No, I, I uh, actually laptop. I, I will do something different. So, so maybe I'm being uh, <laughs> contradicting myself. No, a laptop. And I think it's the recommendation of that. But, but for a laptop, I think you want to take the battery out and also leave it. Um, <laughs> See what I'm getting at here? No, that's a, a good one. So I'm thinking desktops, though, though I believe when I've done it on laptops, um, I've had it both disconnected from. Uh, I believe that's the recommendation. We should we should we should look into that. Yeah, no, I, you bring up a good I, point. So I'm contradicting myself because desktops, when I've worked on them, even replacing RAM or any components, I always leave it plugged in because it provides that ground. Not, not a along with that, what you may want to get, and you should be able to get this at, at almost any, uh, you know, Radio Shack or something like that. Get what's called a grounding strap. Right. And this is basically a little strap that you put around your wrist uh, if, you, if you've worked in a technical or you know you work in a lab or something like that. I mean. Um, I know the, the lab people that I've worked with on a bench when they're soldering and all that sort of thing here. So, so one of it is a little strip that wraps around your wrist. Some of them are, are throwaways and some of them are, are single use. Um, 
or you can use them again. So uh, again, uh, one of it you usually typically put around your wrist, and then the other thing will be a clip that you typically put to something. Um, usually a ground, like maybe the frame of the machine that you're working on. What that does is is just, you know, if there's any energy building up on you, it's going to kind of shuffle into the ground strap and into the wire and through the case, and it's a ground, and everything's going to be great, rather than the charge building up on you and then you zapping something. So, um, you know, i, I got to ponder that. No, you bring up a, a, a good point there, because I, I do follow a different procedure when I'm working on a laptop uh, than when I'm working on... Um, desktop that's a good one how about about you yeah i i do exactly the same thing that you do so uh and it's it's because i like that ground that the difference is on the laptop uh the the ground is separate from in my opinion the ground is you know not coming through that little dc cable that's trickling power to the laptop right so it's not getting grounded regardless of whether or not it's plugged in Whereas a, a desktop, you know, the power supply is internal to the machine and presumably grounded to the chassis. So uh, so there is the benefit of ground so that that. But I do exactly the same thing you do is I, I leave it plugged in. If it's a desktop, if it's a laptop, I remove all traces of power because, you know, that thing's bound to start up on you. Uh, if you know, and the same is true as a, of a desktop, right? You know, if you hit the power button while you're in there, uh, you know, hands off, right? <laughs> Get out. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'd be curious to know from any of our uh, uh, listeners uh, who either, you know, work, uh, work at Apple or do, do other technical work, what processes they follow and uh, yeah. how it differs between a desktop machine and a laptop machine. I so, never um, used a grounding strap. I, um, I, I always just grabbed the power supply when I was inside the computer. And, and, and you know, what I would do is I get my feet stable. Uh, and then I grab the power supply and then I would make sure not to shuffle my feet or do anything like that that would, you know, build up any any noticeable charge at that point. And there were many times where I grabbed a power supply and felt a shock and was like, OK, well, at least I discharged myself there as opposed to on the motherboard or video card or, or whatever else inside the machine. So, yeah. And the worst time usually for this to happen is usually in the winter, at least my experience in the Northeast, right. because uh, a lot of I mean, you know that. I mean, you've run into this. I mean, mm-hmm. you walk around and you, you, you'll touch, you know, doorknobs and other people, and you'll shock them with static electricity. Right. So, um, so maybe you want to make sure that the area you're in, uh, you know, has has a certain amount of humidity to uh, to prevent that sort of thing happening. Right. I'm going to wrap up with something else, which may be the case. I kind of doubt okay. it, but I'll toss it out anyways. Yep. Um, you may want to try resetting either the SMC, which is the system management controller. Um, that handles some power functions. So it could be that that's uh, why the, the, the fans are spinning up and nothing's happening. Yeah. And we'll link to an article on how to do that. It, it varies on the machine. Um, or try to reset the PRAM. Right. Uh, again, something in these you know portions of the Mac memory uh, may have gotten corrupted, and that's why it's not uh, starting up right. I kind of doubt it. I, 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 I think the, the motherboard's been zapped, but it's, it's, it's worth a try. It's always worth a try. That's right. Yep. Yep. Uh, okay. Let's move on to, uh, let's, where, where are we doing on time here? Where are we here? Let's, uh, let's move on to Justin. Let's do this. Hi, John and Dave. It's Justin from the UK. Um, I have a problem with a Xerox 8560 multifunctional printer. My problem is this, that the, um, the scanning function just does not want to work. And I'm not sure if Xerox actually support it on Snow Leopard. Um, 
they've released their updated drivers uh, about six months ago or so, um, but it still doesn't want to work. Uh, I'm not sure if I need to um, set it up with a network connection. I'm not really sure about how to do this anyway. Um, so um, just wondering if you could help me out or suggest a solution. It's really annoying because it was quite an expensive multifunctional printer and Xerox say it's fully compatible, but it just does not want to work off a USB. So uh, um, love the podcast, love the show. Um, this is the part you cut me off. All right. A nice, uh, nice reverb there. I'm not sure if that was artificial just, reverb or if you were in a gymnasium. But I just awesome. noticed that. I, yeah. I didn't hear it on the laptop, but I certainly heard uh, it with my uh, my headphones. So um, I could, if I heard him, he said 856D. Correct. Right? Yeah. Okay. I, I searched and I could not, I don't know if that's a, a I'm going to guess he's across the pond there. So I don't know if this is a, a he might he might have he probably meant the 865d um which which, oh, oh. which is is but it it's irrelevant okay uh the reality is and 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 your experience I found is, it. You're, you're right yeah your experience is going to vary depending on your depending on the model of printer and the operating system right i have uh a hp laserjet 3055 multifunction printer network and usb capable Great printer. It copies. It faxes. It's got its own, you know, phone port in it. It can fax from the computer via the computer. And then, of course, it scans, except with 10.6.3. Uh, worked fine. Uh, the, the Officially, when Leopard came out, I got so I got, you know, this printer's older, but certainly uh, as far as the printer's concerned, uh, a fine printer still. Um, when Leopard came out, it took six months for them to come out with Leopard drivers Finally, they came out with leopard drivers. You know, there was a way to get it working, but you had to hold your mouth just right. Uh, the leopard drivers uh, have worked just fine with Snow Leopard up until uh, 10.6.3. Snow Leopard still sees the printer. Uh, it will still print to it. No problem. But uh, when you go to scan, it sees it as a scanner, but it will not scan from it. And I've tried it on multiple machines. Uh, it, it, you know, the Apple changed something in 10.6.3. Uh, and they cha- and to be fair, they changed a lot in 10.6 that that uh, it can interfere with the way certain scanners and certain uh, drivers uh, work. It 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 really depends on the printer itself. The best thing you can do is remove all the printer software for that printer from your computer and then start from scratch. Sometimes that will get it to work in Snow Leopard, but again, it's it's going to be on a case by case basis. Um, and and unfortunately, the answer is if it doesn't work, it doesn't work until the manufacturer comes out, A, acknowledges that it doesn't work and then B, comes out with uh, with a revised driver or Apple, maybe 10.6.4 fixes what they broke in 10.6.3. Uh, who knows? So that that's my experience with it. Now, John, you you bought a newer multifunction printer and you had a much different experience as as one would expect. Right. Uh, so one thing I'm going to suggest, or one thing I'm going to point out here. So, uh, uh, for example, so I looked on. Um, no, hold on. Let me let me get his uh, let me get his question up here. So eight six five. Who who are we talking about here? Ju- Justin. It's not an email question. It's just an audio question. So there's nothing to. Read. Ah. Okay. And he was saying ten six. He's in Snow Leopard. Oh, he is. Okay, yep. that's what I thought I heard. Okay. Yep. So in Snow Leopard, now what you can do is is go go to um, system preferences. Uh, go to print and fax, and you should have the printer on the left. Um, what you can do, I'm going to offer one suggestion here. So, of course, if you double click on it, 
It should bring up, uh, you know, utility. And you should be able to click on then printer setup. And then there will be a driver tab. Now, one thing that you could do here, or, or something I'm going to point out here. So if you then go to the driver tab and then select, uh, the choice is select printer software. That'll give you a list of all of the drivers that are built in uh, or have been installed on the OS. Now, what you notice is some of them will say, at least under Snow Leopard, Cups and Gutenprint. What that is is an open source uh, driver effort. Some will not have that. If they don't have that, then my understanding is that that's a driver that's been provided by the manufacturer. Okay. I, yeah. Important to note, though, you're talking about printer drivers there. That does not yes. show you scanner drivers. Yes. So. Okay. But yeah. I think they could. Be, uh, yes, you're correct. Okay. So well, what I'm suggesting is that if you if you look at this list here, you may be getting a driver that will offer you both. Well, one thing he could try. I'll, I'll tell you why I say that, because. Okay. um. Yeah, as you pointed out, so I recently uh, got my mom a new uh, multifunction device, an HP device. What I noticed with that, so first off, HP is pretty pretty well supported uh, under Mac OS X, and this was a, a you know pretty much current model here. But what happened is basically plugged it in, um, you know, went to the the printer utility to add a printer, and it actually uh, what I see happen a lot of times when you install a new printer, um, Snow Leopard will go out um, to Apple and say, "Hey, are there any new drivers for for what I think is connected to me?" And in this case, it actually downloaded um, both a printer driver, but then it also installed a scanner driver. And how do I know this? Because when I went to, pre uh, I was looking at a picture in preview, and this, uh, this, um, I'm almost positive it was preview, but I was looking at a picture in preview, and I noticed in the upper right corner of preview, it said image scan or scan. A preview is is an application that if you do have a scanner, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, I don't have the screenshot in front of me. Yep. But we'll let you if you are connected to an image scanner. Um, but we'll we'll recognize that fact, and I, I think it launches if you're, if you're image connected, capture. Yeah, if you're connected to an image capture capable scanner, some scanners only work with software from the manufacturer. Some it it, it depends. Right. Correct. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, if it if if, if there's a an Apple blessed or or proper, I don't want to say properly written, but it but maybe that's the right term, a properly written, written driver, then, yes, it can show up in in image capture. Absolutely. Yeah. The uh, problem one, the problem mm -hmm. with that is, uh, you know, some printers like my printer has uh, or my scanner has a document feeder and then it's also got the glass. So. Uh, it, it, there, there's, I'm not sure what the capabilities of image capture are, if it can handle that sort of thing. And that may be why some vendors say, well, I'm not going to mess with trying to, you know, shoehorn my printer's capabilities into the, the form that image capture wants to see. I'm just going to go ahead and write my own driver. Well, I think what it has to be, uh, what is it? Is uh, it it's coming to me. Yes. Oh, wow. We're in sync today. Yes. Um, typically, yeah, I, I've run into this because I, I, uh, um, was using um it was an epson perfection m750 i think okay um in the workplace and that that's a pretty nice actually i think it's like a 6400 dpi scanner it's really sweet but um when i plugged that into the the mac mini um image capture would see it and my understanding is that image capture will typically see things that have as you point out a twain driver twain is okay. a standard for um uh, so actually here's another suggestion do you, so do you know what is, twain do you know what twain stands for Oh, 
it's one of these these kind of wise guy. Uh. It, it is. It doesn't stand for anything. Uh, some people say that it stands for technology without an interesting name. Yes. Uh, but but with the word Twain, uh, according if Wikipedia is to be believed, uh, which, of course, it's not, uh, is is from the Ballad of East and West by Rudyard Kipling, where he says, and never the Twain shall meet. And of course, mm. Twain being the. The standard that allows one driver to work with another, uh, you know, it's that it's that middle ground. So that's that's kind of where that name came from. So. But yeah. So so fire up image capture, see if it shows up in the devices or reach out to the Xerox and see if they have a twain compatible uh, driver, in which case then he should be able to get to the uh, to the image scanning functionality. Yeah, if Xerox like, says that their drivers uh, are certified to work not just with Snow Leopard, but with 10.6.3, because we, we have definitely noticed that there is some change that happened in 10.6.3. But if Xerox says that, that they are, you know, n- known to work with 10.6.3, then go through that process, uninstall everything, then go to the uh, go to the, the system preferences, printers and facts, like John mentioned, and remove all traces of that printer from there, reboot the machine and then install fresh from the latest download you can get from Xerox. And that may, that may solve the problem that, that it's not unforeseeable to think that that would, you know, get past whatever all this is. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not getting a warm fuzzy here because nope. I, I just found this on the Xerox site. Okay. And uh, the only OS that I see is a supported OS for this device, or at least where they offer. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, I see windows Vista for the XC eight sixty five. Yeah. And I see a little box here saying Windows 7 and Mac OS 10.6. Updated drivers and support now available. Well, All right. I found this on the Xerox site. So it may just be a matter of. Uh, so it sounds like it didn't grab the right thing when he um, installed it. You know, the, 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 the OS 10 capability did not. It sounds like it did not uh, grab, grab the right thing. Sometimes you have to explicitly download the driver from the vendor. Because um, sometimes they'll provide it to Apple and Apple, uh, and it'll pull it off Apple servers. But in some cases, you may have to go to the vendor itself. But as far as I can tell here, well, it says for a list of Xerox equipment compatible with Mac OS 10.6. I'm going to click on this. Uh, maybe you can vamp a little bit here, but let's. Uh, 865 was it or 856? Yeah, sure. well, I mean, you know, the the reality is it it he's got to get with Xerox and figure out whether it's supposed to work with 10.6.3. Um, because otherwise he's chasing his tail, right? 10, okay. six support is not enough to, to know, but, but it's worth chasing your tail. That one, you know, remove everything only install from Xerox. And then once it gets working, if software update offers to update your printer driver to whatever Apple wants to put on there, say, no, do not do that. Right. You know, once it's working, don't let those, those drivers that are going to come through software update, overwrite them. Okay, and actually, I see in the, in the Xerox support document they have different levels of compatibility for the devices. Yeah, and it ranges. So this kind of backs up what I said before. So it ranges from uh, so their top level of support says drivers for Mac OS ten point six are available through Apple Software Update Service and can also be downloaded from Xerox.com, which indicates to me that that they're the same driver. Should be both from Apple and Xerox, and the drivers are fully compatible with thirty two and sixty four bit. And then the support starts degrade. Oh, then they have some cases where it says, well, you got to download it from us. So, right. All right. Our second sponsor for this show is circus ponies at circus with notebook. Now notebook is an app 
that allows you to organize your thoughts over specific topics or events or classes or whatever. If you're a student or perhaps you are uh, in the workforce, but you have to go take a class, notebook is going to be a great asset for this. What you do is you start a new notebook for whatever class it is. And the first thing you'll see is what resembles a white line notebook. In fact, this would be a great thing to use at WWDC next week if you're going, right? You start taking notes. You can use tab to get things hierarchical. Then if you, let's say you, uh, at the end of the uh, presentation, you know, I was reading today on, on TMO, John Martellaro said, stick around at the end and very quickly either jot down or snap a picture of all the contact information uh, that the Apple engineers provide. This can be a great way to get, uh, you know, to, to maintain a relationship with these people beyond WWDC and get some questions answered. So uh, his, his advice was snap that picture. Well, you could snap that picture and then drag that picture in to your notebook and pull it right in. You can annotate it from there. You get home from WWDC. Now you've got uh, a different, uh, let's say, you know, you could create a different notebook for each uh, session that you took, or you could create different notebooks for each track, right? Maybe one is all iPhone stuff. Maybe one is WebKit stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Now you've got all this stuff. You can search within the notebook and you can say, gosh, you know, I know there was an iPhone session I was at on Tuesday uh, where they talked about, uh, you know, some class that I, I really want to research, but I can't remember. Well, you search by date and you say, find me everything that I edited on Tuesday and boom, it'll come up right there. And, uh, and then, you know, you can, you can tag it or annotate it any way you like. Uh, this is all available at circusponies.com. Notebook is of course available for a free download. Uh, it's a 30 day trial. So that'll get you through WWDC. Once you love it though, uh, you go and buy it. Forty nine ninety five is the standard license. If you are a student, uh, going to, uh, College or anything below that, I guess. Uh, $29.95 is the academic license. And then, of course, you can get a three-user license as a family pack for $99.95. All available at circusponies.com. But go ahead and, and grab the free download first. Check it out. And uh, once you love it, then go and buy it. And, uh, and they'll appreciate that. And I think you'll appreciate it, too. Circusponies.com. I said that already. All right, let's uh, let's hear what Adrian has to say. Uh, this gets interesting. Hey, John and Dave, this is Adrian from Pennsylvania, and I'm having a problem on my wife's iMac. Uh, it's sort of sporadic. Uh, although you know, she'll try to send an email, and she'll get the message: "Cannot send message using the server smtp.me.com colon her username." And I've tried deleting the account and re-adding it. Uh, I've tried editing the uh, the ports, uh, choosing only 587 or only 25. Um, I can't really figure it out. Uh, any help would be appreciated. This is where you cut me off. But so we will cut you off. All right. Uh, so a couple of things could be happening here, right? It could simply be that you are uh, trying to send mail when mobile me's servers are down. I haven't heard about that happening nearly as much lately as it used to. Uh, but but certainly if their servers are down, ain't, ain't no mail getting through. Right. And they do have them. There are multiple servers around They're They're, they're uh, location based. So it's possible that the one that you normally pick is is more problematic than than others. But let's 
rule that out. Let's assume for, for the sake of discussion that that's not it. Right. Uh, it could be that, you know, mail is interesting in the way it configures things. If you go into preferences, accounts, and then at the bottom, you'll see outgoing mail SMTP. Click on the server there and choose edit uh, SMTP server list, I think, or edit outgoing list. I can't remember. Edit SMTP server list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then click on your mobile me server, which will probably be SMTP.me.com and click advanced. You'll see chances are it says use default ports 25, 465, 587. It's important to know what each of these ports is for. 25 is the standard uh, venerable mail port that all mail on the Internet, uh, at least outbound mail, uh, is 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 used is trafficked upon. Right. A lot of ISPs will block you from connecting outside of their network on port 25. And the reason for this is uh, there was a lot of Windows based spam back in the day. There might still be mm-hmm. that that would generate junk mail and send out spam or be a spam relay. And right. uh, and so they block port 25 from getting outside their networks just to limit this. Uh, so using port 25 is a bad idea anyway. Uh, and it's usually insecure. And it's usually insecure. It's, it's, it's in the clear. Right. So. Now, if you want to stay in the clear, and that's what port 587 was created for. It's essentially act. It's supposed to act the same way that port 25 does, but uh, is not for server to server communication. It's for end user outbound communication. So that's what 587 is for. Again, still built to be in the clear. But that's what 587 is for, is the 25 alternative. And most ISPs won't block 587 because they know that if you're talking to a server on 587, you're not trying to pretend that you're some other mail server uh, sending the mail. 465, though, is your best bet as long as the server supports it, because that's the port that SSL or secure mail uh, is is trafficked on. So my advice is do two things here. One Set the uh, use custom port in mail and type in 465. That way we're not leaving it up to mail to try and pick, you know, maybe whatever's happening to your wife's computer, Adrian, is that for whatever reason, it's defaulting back to port 25 sometimes. And then your ISP blocks it and you're horked. Right. So use custom port 465. Check the box that says use secure sockets layer. And hopefully at that point you're done uh, and the problem will go away because at least you've narrowed down. Uh, any variable on what port it's going to choose or how it's going to try and send that mail. That, that would be, that's my advice. That's- I'm with you on that. I'll, I'll, uh, and actually you showed me that setting. I had never seen that before. Yeah. So I was like, well, no, I'm using port 25 to mobile me. And the thing is, I don't know if I am, I'll, I'll have to uh, right. actually dig and see if I am, but yeah, I had the button check that you pointed out and I also had SSL check. So I'm almost certain it's not using port 25. But one thing I want to mention, you could determine if um, if your ISP or somebody's blocking it um, by doing this. And this is a good little trick for just testing out any connection here. So what you want to try to do, go to the terminal yeah. and use our friend Telnet. Now, you're going to be using Telnet in a different way here. So Telnet is typically used to, um, you know, it's an insecure way of connecting to another computer with a text interface over a network. The thing is, is that if you're doing it from the command line, you don't necessarily have to default to the Telnet port. Right. Which I forgot off the top of my head, which it is. Uh, uh, maybe you remember. Shoot. Eh, don't worry about it. Ooh. 43? Okay. No, no, no. 
Uh, anyway, don't, don't worry about it. it doesn't. I it used doesn't to matter. know this, but go ahead. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You're right. Right. Or 22, I thought it was. No, that's um, SSH. Okay, which is yes. Uh, anyways, what you can do is go to the terminal and then type telnet space the name of the server or computer you want to go to, which in this case would be smtp.me.com, then another space, and then the port that you want to connect to. So if you don't put anything there, it's going to try to do it on the telnet port, which is 23. 23. Okay, very yeah. close. But say I wanted to connect to port 25, then what I would do is after the name of the server, a space, and then 25. That's right. So the, the command, just to tie it all together, is telnet. No E in the middle between the L and the N. It's not telenet. Uh, it is telnet. T-E-L-N-E-T space smtp.me.com space 25. Right. Now, if that's blocked, then you'll probably get a message like connection refused or something like that, indicating somebody along the way is blocking it. If you type that and then you, you bang on some keys and you, you get something, you get a response or something. Well, what it should say is it say trying and then it'll give you an IP address. And if right. you get connected, it'll say connected to smtb.me.com then escape characters, control bracket. And then it'll give you the, the server's response, which should say something about Mac.com in it. What's also possible is that it, a lot of ISPs will uh, and and not so much ISPs, but like hotel rooms and those kind of networks will trap traffic on port 25. So any traffic that you're trying to send out on 25, they'll route to their own mail server, not to be, uh, you know, not to be nefarious or anything, but to make your life easier and send mail through a server that they know is going to accept your mail. Um, so if you don't see something about Mac.com in there, then you know that something is trapping it. Uh, and that could also be the issue. Yeah. And actually, I just checked mine here. So, so as you point out, so what's going to happen after a while? And I just saw this because I guess uh, it waits for a while. Yep. I got a message here. Connect address. And it gives the IP address. And it says operation time out. And then it says unable to connect to remote host. So okay, as far so as I can tell here, my ISP is it doesn't want me to connect to 25. Interesting. I used to have 25 blocked uh, from me here. And I just tried it now. And, and uh, it let me through just fine. <laughs> So go figure. But but that's it. Right. Sometimes they're going to block it. Sometimes not uh, 20. It's not a bad thing if your ISP blocks port 25. Don't you know, don't fault them for that. Um, so, right. yeah. Uh, do we have anything else on this or are we? Uh, no, I think we're cool. OK, so, yeah, but that would be a good thing. You know, try 25. Uh, if 25 is blocked, try 465 and then try 587. And, and once you figure out which one it answers on, hopefully it answers on 465 and you can just be done with it. You put that in, uh, you save your changes there in mail and then you don't have to worry because, you know, 25 is going to be blocked or not blocked by, you know, depending on where your connection is, 465 is never going to be blocked or at least it shouldn't be. So if you take your machine and you go somewhere else or you're in a hotel or you bring it to a you know friend's house or whatever, it's just going to work. So. All right. Uh, we've got time for a couple more. Interestingly enough, you know, those those uh, connection issues that I've been having, Comcast has been working on them hmm. and they, uh, they, the the uh, Comcast tech is actually sitting outside waiting for us to finish the show so they can run a new line. I'm not convinced that a, a lot that the line's the issue. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But they want to run a new line. And so I'm just going to go ahead and let them. That's it's you know, I'm not going to complain. So, uh, but, but, okay. you know, I, I, my, my wife told him, oh, you got to wait. My husband's podcasting. They've been out there for 45 minutes. So, you know, <laughs> Hey, you know, you, they could have called okay. and set up an appointment, right? I had no idea yeah. 
when they were coming, I and I certainly didn't expect them today. There was not so you know. Well, hey. this is like payback. I mean, how many times yes. have you waited for the cable person? <laughs> I feel no remorse. You might not. You might not notice it from my voice, but I have. I feel no remorse about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I. Anyways, um, Katie, I think Katie's a quick one. Yeah. Let's do. Let's do. Let's do that. You. Uh, you had a conversation. I guess it was on Twitter or maybe via email. Yes. With, with Katie from the MacCore podcast. Uh, not the MacCore anymore. From the Mac, Mac Power users. Power users. Right. Yes. Right. Um, so, so she's uh, one of the cool kids in the you know podcasting world. But anyway, she, you she should listen just, to that show. It, it's actually a really, really good show. They do a great job. Uh, and uh, and she and David do a fantastic job there. So check that show out. Uh, but mm-hmm. go ahead, John. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll link to it. So anyways, she. Um, so this was a case where I, I, I had run into this before and, and exhibited a little Google foo. So she, she had tweeted something out saying, oh, no, my Apple LCD display, the light is flashing three. The power light is flashing three times. Like, oh, boy, because typically on most pieces of equipment, and I'm going to build in a rant here. So a lot of pieces of equipment, when something's wrong, you'll get either, like on a lot of Macs, you'll hear beeps or tones, and they'll typically be in a pattern, like, you know, short, long, or whatever. And I found this article where Apple displays do something similar. So Apple displays, and uh, uh, the title is Apple LCD displays, power light flashes. And this is where I started to get worried because there are three different patterns and the problem can range anywhere from, I, I think the worst case is I've detected a problem with the backlight, which basically means you can probably toss it uh, in that the backlight's failed, which makes the display not very useful. Um, the middle of the road problem is the other pattern means uh, you plugged in the wrong power adapter. What's wrong with you? I didn't think that was the case. Then the third one, unfortunately, this was this because she gave me the feedback and said that it solved it. Uh, and this is a little finger ragged apple. The pattern was short, short, short. And what Apple says in this article, that means the display is detecting wrong video format or an unsupported resolution. And their suggested resolution to this is a, uh, not that resolution, but another resolution. The way to solve the problem is to reset the PRAM. She reset the PRAM or whatever machine it was. That solved the problem. Here's my rant. Um, why are you, you know, it's a display, Dave. You know what it could do? It could display the fact that the signal is out of sync. Oh, no, John, it, it did display that fact. It it, it showed the three God. blinking lights, right? That's perfect <laughs> for a display. I mean, that's 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 all we use our displays for anyway, right? It's just yeah, looking at the blinking lights. I'm I'm uh, especially since Apple displays tend to command a premium. I'm I'm surprised yeah. that, and I've run into this on like I have a Samsung. Uh, I've used Samsung and Dell screens. I, I think actually yeah. they're very similar. I think they source the nice. the tubes from the same place. Yeah. Um, and I would personally recommend either one of those uh, to hook up to a Mac, and, and I have done that. But on those displays, if a signal comes into it and the signal is not, you know, the wrong frequency or the wrong resolution, it'll say something like, you know, a signal out of range, I think is what a lot of these will say. Which basically means is either, again, either the frequency or the resolution that the device uh, that's talking to me is trying to negotiate is, is one that I don't support. Then it says it in English or, I guess, the language of your choice. So. Right. Anyways, this had a happy ending. I'm kind of surprised that the PRAM corruption caused the computer to, to you know, re- request a, a wacky uh, resolution, but it worked. And then I think I'll find another article, too, because, the, the, again, this is something that a lot of Macs will do is that if they have a, an issue um, when they start up, they'll do beeps. Um, I actually remember some Macs would do something cool as they would make... Uh, you know, like a sound of a traffic accident, you know, like screeching tires and, 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 and breaking glass. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So wrapping that up, uh, but, but, but beeps and blinking lights, um, 
usually you got to dig around and, and Apple's pretty good if, or, or if you got the Google Foo, you can find out what's, uh, what it's trying to tell you. Yeah, there you go. Cool. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up. I mean, almost wraps us up. We need to make sure everybody knows how to get in touch with us, John. Why would you want it to? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. the phone number to call is 206-666-GEEK, which is, as we all know, 4335. But that's not the only way to get in touch with us, Dave. You can also email us. And if I wanted to email us with either text or screenshots or movies or audio or whatever, I would send an email to feedback at macgeekgab.com, Dave. Did you say feedback at macgeekgab.com, John? That's what I said, and I'm sticking to it. All right. So uh, feedback at macgeekgab.com works. Premium at macgeekgab.com works. If you're a premium subscriber, and I'm going to take a quick minute here. Uh, we've had quite a few people that have said, gosh, you know, uh, I just found out about the premium thing. If I'd known, I would have signed up sooner. So uh, I, I, I want to make sure everybody knows, John and I, for the past almost six months now, uh, have been doing an extra two episodes a month. Uh, we call those Mac Geek Gab Premium. And for 25 bucks for six months, you can have access to those. It also gives you access to the archives. And uh, and we have a lot of fun with the premium show. It's it's more of what we're doing here. It's uh, we're answering questions, solving your problems. And we do attempt to um, make sure that if we're answering a, a premium user's question, that we're doing it in the premium show and, and the same with, with the rest. So if you're not a premium subscriber, you won't necessarily be excluded. Can't promise that happens 100% of the time, but we do attempt not to uh, not to exclude anybody and and if we do you know you're getting an email from us anyway so uh, so don't worry about it mm-hmm. and uh, uh, yeah. to, to lead into another way uh, to you know keep up with what we're doing so I want to point out is uh, with the premium show is that you know I, I lovingly craft the show notes for both of the shows here and right. you can see the show notes which often contain answers to the sure. questions of course those are free you can see those even if you're not a subscriber right um, and if you want to find out when the show notes are posted as long as when the show itself is posted on Twitter, you can look at Matt Geekab. Um, if you want to follow me and my ranting and raving about things that aren't necessarily Mac related, that's John F. Braun. If you want to follow Dave's rants, um, <laughs> yeah, that would be Dave Hamilton. Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete, and the Mac Observer is Mac Observer. All very straightforward Twitter handles. So uh, right. follow some of those if, if, if you like. That's right. Uh, the We Have Communicators podcast is the one that Michael Johnston does when he's not converting the AAC for us. Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com provides all the bandwidth to get the podcast from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo, with a new update today from Barebones Software, PDF Pen and Disc Label from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and Go to Assist Express from Citrix at gotoassist.com slash gab all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. That's it, I guess. I hope. The Comcast guy hopes. Yeah, he's probably getting paid anyways, right? Look, I don't... It's not really... uh, I don't really care. Have fun. Hopefully we'll do a show next week from uh, from WWDC, uh, as long as bandwidth permits. But in any event, Mm -hmm. don't get caught. Made up.